This is the Snarketing Podcast for marketers by marketers talking to marketers with just a touch of snark. Now, here are your hosts, Valerie Vespa and Matt Wurst. Thank you, Al, for that warm, very personable intro. Clearly, you we are, love you. You're mastering humanity. Um, and for the fact that you are an AI named Al is not lost on me. But let's, you know, Valerie, let's get into AI in a second because I feel like it's unavoidable. Thank you for coming back for episode two to our, well, first oh, thank to, you. to our listeners, but also to you, Valerie. This would, have been, <laughs> this, this would have been a lot less fun without you. <laughs> Thanks. Both me and the audience. But we should apologize for my shitty audio in the first episode. We are learning how to do this. We've each probably been on a thousand podcasts. We've probably listened to 10,000. Yet we are rookies at this technology, which is also not lost on me, given that we work in a marketing technology creative convergence. So, all right. I'm going to say I'm impressed with your tech abilities, though. I I, I do have to say you're you're good. We're learning. The fact that Al is an AI that I have created through a voice app I know you especially love that. I know. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Listeners, what do you think? Send us your feedback. (laughs) Should it be a British woman next time? Should Al really be Alberta (laughs) from Canada? We can do all these different accents. It's actually really cool. But it's also a little bit scary. And let's talk about this in our first really deep dive, Seen and Heard. We call this The Seen and the Heard. Thanks, Al. So, Valerie... You and I are active on LinkedIn. We see probably dozens of posts daily, sometimes from the same Mm -hmm. person, but like tips and tricks on how to use ChatGPT. Are you using ChatGPT personally or as a marketer? I am using it very infrequently and I, I find myself not trained on thinking to go there for support. Um, And that is one of the biggest friction points for me at this moment. I just, I, I was just speaking to somebody that I was at a, I was hosting a panel and she gave me suggestions for questions. And I said, thank you so much for like sending that so quickly. Like, are there great questions? And she goes, oh my God, I just put in a sentence into chat, chat GPT and they gave me all of these questions. Yeah, I found that the output is fine. It's not very creative. It can be a good foundation for ideas, but it lacks Agreed. the human touch. And if you can figure out how to layer on your own humanity, I like to call like AI plus HI, human intelligence, hi. Yep. That is what we should be thinking about it as and for it. It sounds like you need an AI tool to remind you to use AI. Yes, actually, I think so. Another, another interesting comment that was made to me by uh, someone in the media industry was, that a client has purchased some sort of, or uses some sort of AI software. Forgive me. Cause I'm like, it was in passing in a conversation. And I'm still thinking about it. They, they use this software to overlay over their digital media buying and it provided great um, cost benefits. Hmm. And, and that, that particular DSP was, found out about it, figured it out somehow because they weren't spending nearly as much. And it's 
something that I think is quite interesting for future. You know, someone who works on more of the creative side, there's a lot of fear that it's going to put creators out of business. And I actually think it's going to be the opposite. It's going to make the creative better. I'm using it personally more on the visual side, you know, mid-journey as a visual creative tool. Yes, they had some issues early on where you'd put something in and people would have like six fingers, which isn't abnormal, by the way, if you have polydactyly, great, we love you as a listener. But the fact that like you would have a thumb in the middle of a palm or like 11 oh, yeah. fingers Their wrapped shoulder. around. Yeah, like they, yeah. Got it, they, they worked it out. It's still not perfect, but it's getting a lot better. It's making my pitch decks slightly more manageable because you can then not listen to me and just look at the cool visuals. That's usually the secret to my pitching success. <laughs> so we'll see. I, I think there are going to be a lot of pros and cons that we see coming out of it. Yes, people are afraid of the existential crisis of AI taking over Terminator style. I am not worried about that. Uh, I think by the time Normal. that happens, you and I will be uh, long dead and buried, which is hopefully not too soon. But this, this is a hype cycle. We're seeing real value out of it in the same way we saw it out of Metaverse and Web3 blockchain. And we're coming out of that down dip in that hype cycle. Just and, the, and the challenging with the hype cycle, too, is that, like, I find that people, when you bring up Metaverse, like, have such a negative or crypto or something. They have such negative connotations to it because of the level of hype that occurred over the last couple of years. And so I really do think, you know, the Metaverse is real. It is. Gaming exists. That's a Metaverse. I think but we're talking AI in a metaverse is, right now, by the way, we're talking we're, in a virtual talking. augmented world. Correct. Exactly. And then from an AI standpoint, it's super real. And, you know, I get that hype happens. It's just what we do. Um, everyone's looking for content to share and talk about, but like, it's, you know, I, I just, I, I hate this idea of everything beca becoming negative. So immediately because everyone's obsessed with it when it really is real stuff. I mean, it's, it's real. You should be thinking about it. You shouldn't be ignoring it. You shouldn't be annoyed by it. We could be annoyed by some of the LinkedIn posts, I think, where people who claim yes. to be experts on it, but that is the hype and not the actual reality. And part right. of our job as both marketers, storyteller, creators, and consumers of this technology is to quickly sift through the hype to figure out where the real value is and where it's not in the same way that we might be a little bit ahead on Web3 blockchain, crypto metaverse, like we're starting to see practical functional use cases. That hype cycle around AI is happening a little bit more quickly because the practical realities of what it can be used for are really beneficial, but there's also a lot of crap that's coming with it. So would you have used this in high school to write a paper? Um, I might have done it for research, but again, my not to brag, but as a writer, I am so much better than ChatGPT. My style, yeah. like I'm a writer. So I, I, I think it'll give me good inspiration, but I write a bi-weekly newsletter plug called The Four Ps, and I've never once used ChatGPT for any of it. And You I'm should a, put that stipulation on your on your on your. Well, I, look, it would it would newsletter. make it it would make it happen a lot quicker. I mean, I spend a couple of hours every other week writing it. I love it. But I believe that I my 9,832 readers appreciate my voice. And they would know if it was like, let us tell you about something that is really interesting. Like You could sift through that bullshit very quickly. 
So personality is like nine tenths of the law. I think that's that's an expression, right? Or did I just make that up? But and and your newsletter is fantastic. Well, thank you. So speaking of hype, when I am at an event or am I am at a party and we're going Mm. to Cannes next week, right? Well, well, I love this segue. Before we get to our guest, tell me about what you are excited about. What's happening in Cannes? Because it's it's real. It's happening, and it's also hyped. Well, as you know. Out front, we'll have a yacht this year, so I'm thick and in, deep into the the weeds of um, figuring out content and whatever happy hours. So I'm really excited about it. We have some really special content. Thanks to you introducing me to Michael Cohen. We're doing a great panel with him we, from Whistle. You know, those who hear this, please come to the boat um, and check it out. You know, planning for can. I find that there are a ton of people going this year. So I'm actually very, very excited about it. It's just going to be a good time. It's exhausting. This is the stressful week where your calendar looks like Jenga. You got 11 things happening every second. And it's really a matter of not what's going to be most interesting, but where are you closest when one thing ends? (laughs) Like, oh, you know what? That thing, I'm on a yacht right now, but that thing is all the way down the beach or up on a villa. And for people listening who've never been, this sounds like the most pretentious conversation of all time, but work really does happen there, right? <laughs> it really, it really, you, I mean, the thing is you foster some amazing relationships and you, when you think about how, I, I don't know, since COVID, I feel like I'm more, it, it's really hard to get people out and about to communicate face to face. You know, I think people have gotten very comfortable with, with not being out as often um, in, in socializing. So this is a really kind of, great experience to just have set time with people and, and, and learn and collaborate and communicate. I don't know. There's so many people that say to me, I'm so happy I'm not going this year. And I just, I don't know how much I believe them. I also just appreciate some of the good stories that come out of it, including you and I last year, almost getting arrested, trying to hop on a dinghy that stormed the beach (laughs) to take us off in the middle of the night. Uh, You know, things like that or ending up on, some trillionaire's mega yacht without really any planned reason to be there. Like that spontaneity is what I love. The law of diffusion (laughs) means that you can never have more than 30 people in one place at once, except for everyone trying to get into the Spotify and Amazon concerts after hours. Correct. So well, if we don't see you on a boat, if we don't see you on a beach, or in a villa, we will see you online trying to drop names at the Spotify party. Speaking of Spotify. Yeah, that's a great segue too. Boom, look, you pulled it together and this is only episode two. Our guest today is someone that I have known for many, many years, even though she pretends to not admit it. And she's someone, (laughs) Valerie, that you have met somewhat more recently. But speaking of can, she will be there, she will be working. She will be bringing the hype in a very different way. We are talking about celebrity DJ, event DJ to the stars, but also someone who's taken on yet somewhat more of a serious set of responsibilities in her life over the last few years. And she's gonna talk about it, but you know her as Hesta Prin. I know her as Julie Slavin, and I'm excited for this conversation. And now for the main event. Someone who actually knows what they're talking about. This week, 
we sit down with everyone's favorite marketing event DJ, therapist, and musician, Hester Prynne, a.k.a. Julie Slavin. Welcome, Julie, a.k.a. Hester Prynne, blue chip celebrity DJ, to the marketing community, but also to the stars. That's true. When you talk about snarketing, right? When we're talking about marketing and snarketing, it's like, I have a way that I market myself. And it's not, it's not name checking. It's not name checking my age and the, the town I live in and what high school I went to in the first few seconds. You know what? You can only control, we can only control our brand to a certain extent. <laughs> so, so let me set you up then because yes, you and I have known each other ish. We've danced around the same dance floor, maybe on opposite sides. I don't know that we danced around the same dance floor. Do you know what I was doing in my twenties, Matt? I don't think you were on twenties. We were probably at the same bar mitzvahs. I feel like we weren't. We can name check friends <laughs> later, but why don't we just start with, I remember hearing your name through mutual friends when we were in high school. Okay. And looking back on it, you were probably the like musical theater geek that I secretly wanted to hang out with, but thought I was too cool to hang out with. But it turns out you were just much cooler than I was in, in retrospect. World, in what world? Am I the geek and you're too cool? What is happening on this podcast? <laughs> I'm not even. I'm it, not even it, acting it, for the podcast. I'm literally asking. Matt you. is manifesting his 15 year old self in the delusion by which he's. I mean, I peaked. Let's be honest. I definitely peaked <laughs> junior year of high school. It's been downhill ever since. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. We need to phone some of your friends from high school to validate this. So then let's ask a let's ask this a different way. How would you position yourself or how do you brand yourself in a marketing context? What does your brand mean and how do you portray yourself? So I'll I'll start by talking about a branding technique that I use. How about that? Well, so that. something that I Something that I've learned is that if I tell you something about myself, it has a meaning like here. Maybe now it has more of a meaning, but when I kind of first started out, it meant this. But if I can report to you what a third party said about me, now it counts like this. And so what I learned early on when I entered the music business is that every publication will duplicate your bio word for word, like cut and paste. So whatever you want to say about yourself, the trick is get someone else to say it about you. Poor Hemplay, the beat that I'm on now is music and mental health, right? I've been a musician for a long time. I was in a major label band. I've toured with like a lot of big acts, Cypress Hill, the Beastie Boys, you know, The Roots. I toured with Questlove or worked with Questlove for two years, learned how to mix vinyl from them. I have a lot of great celebrity clients. Emma Lovewell, Amy Schumer, the list goes on. Jimmy Fallon. But if I tell you that I'm the leading voice in music and mental health, it sounds like I'm kind of showing off. Just like when I just read you my resume, I was like a little bit like, mm, it gives you like a yucky feeling of me like selling it. But if you go to my LinkedIn, you'll see that CNN actually called me the leading voice in music and mental health. So I don't have to say it because they said it. Mm -hmm. And you trust them. They already built their brand. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like when it comes to like, you know, we're revealing the secrets when it comes to like humble bragging a little bit. And when it comes to being like likable, I have found that people seem to like me better if I kind of play all my stuff down, but 
you can see on my one sheet all the wonderful things people have said about me, some of which have actually come from the horse's mouth. I love it. Well, there's a famous quote by Jeff Bezos who said, you know, your brand is only what people say about you when you're not in the room. So I think there's a similar vibe there. I think the difference is what you're saying is you can actually inception Jedi mind trick some of that and get others to say what you want them to say in a second degree that then validates it, but doesn't come off as weird or creepy or self-promotional. Yes, but the second piece of that, there's a second piece of that, which is called integrity. So you can get people to say what you want them to say when you're not in the room. But if you're going to have people say that you are, you know, what people say about me, what my reputation is, is that I'm, I'm flawless, I'm professional, I work in service of everything that I do, not in service of myself, and that's the truth. Anyone who's worked with me knows that, that you can trust me around really famous people. I don't take pictures. You can trust me around, you know, blue chip clients. I know how to speak professionally. I know how to be cool. And then, of course, my craft. I know the music. I can mix vinyl. I have a degree now. I'm a real therapist. I'm on the radio. I talk about therapy. Like, I can tell you what I want you to say in a, you know, an inception backwards kind of a way. But then when you hire me or when you listen to my radio show and I roll into the job, you can know in truth that I'm going to live up to what I secretly programmed you to say about me when I wasn't there. And that's called integrity. Right. So it's this like natural feedback loop. Exactly. Yeah. And it's also an awareness of the audience, right? Like as a performer, someone who's been in front of audiences your whole life, whether it's live or on the radio or wherever it is, you have to have this really key set of insights and understanding of the inputs to kind of give them what they want in a way without sacrificing that integrity. Yeah, always. But I think like when it, yes, this is like a secondary thing. And I think when it comes to like your world, right. Cause I work for a lot of the same sort of, you know, people. And that's how I know I, you and I know each other, you know, I guess in theory from like the past, but the reason we're, you know, back um, the reason I'm on your podcast is cause I'm more in your world now. I mean, Valerie are new best friends, <laughs> but we met, but we met through, you know, some, some big ballers we know at Can Lion. Yeah. And so in, in your world, I have found that like what people really want, if this is what you're asking, what people really want is they want to feel cool and they want to feel like they belong. And that means something different to everybody. It's like when I DJ a party for Spotify and it's very young and it's very edgy and it's aggressive, feeling cool is a whole different thing. And when I DJ a party for like WPP, and it's all, you know, like big executives of a certain age and it's mostly men or whatever. It's like making them feel cool and like they belong is a whole different playlist. And I think that the skill that what I bring and kind of what I'm selling, whether it's like as a therapist, whether it's as a radio person, whether it's as a DJ, is that like, I know how to make every single person feel cool. That's like, that's my real gift. I know how to make you feel cool and like you belong. And it's a choice. Do I want to enact that? Yes, of course. Do I want to make it about me and make you feel excluded, which a lot of DJs and creatives and writers and marketers and people who sell things, they make you feel bad because they think it's going to help you buy something. Maybe that's true, but I don't buy that. That's not my brand. I want to make you feel cool. When you come talk to me, I want you to feel like your coolest, best self. And I use music as a tool to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's such music is such a connection point for, I mean, we can get into this conversation for hours and what you do. So tell us a little bit about your show, just like how it started, like how it's going, you know, 
where your what your plans are with it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I like it. How it started, how it's going. It's like the it's like the meme. Yeah, I'm like how it started, and then I'm like how it's going. <laughs> um, but I'm just joking. Uh, so so <laughs> so I've been in music for my whole life, but I've been. They used to call me when I was in the band Northern State. They used to call me Hester Prynne PhD because I was like everybody's therapist. That was like a funny. There's a lot of rhymes actually in the Northern State like canon about that Hester Prynne PhD. Um, and so I always wanted to really learn like family systems and really learn, you know, why people lie and how people make promises to themselves and to others, how to have integrity, how to make your dreams come true, how to like manifest real things. But from, um, from the sort the psychology perspective, let's say, because to me, music and, you know, mental health, they're like, they're the same, they're the same thing. I heard Pitbull say on Howard Stern, uh, I was listening to the repeat this morning and he said, uh, music is an escape music is therapy and i was like oh i gotta record that because that's the name of my show so that was like my sort of secondary goal when i when i got tired of like djing these parties which i which i haven't yet but i would like to eventually one day like leave something here and djing parties and getting paid and doing all the fun things and all that like it's great but it's not really a legacy and so i'm trying to build a legacy and so my, I call it Music is Therapy. I was on Sirius XM. I, I was going to do it there, but I sold it to Amazon. They have a new um, live radio app called Amp, which is awesome. It's live radio, but on the phone, people call in and we, we can play music and it's really interactive and super fun and very community-based. And so I'm building this Music is Therapy community on air where I'm practicing this technique. It's like I'm, I'm creating a new technique of therapy the way we have like Freudian you know, therapy and like Jungian and family systems. It. Yeah, mine is called Music is Therapy, and it's essentially like, how do we look at your hauntings from your life? How do we look at your issues that you have, which we all have? Our parents programmed it into us. Our grandparents programmed it into us. How can, the same way you smell something and it brings you right back to that memory, music is the same. But instead of just sitting in that space, can we use music to heal it? And this is the technique that I'm developing. And that's what I want to leave into the world. And so this is like a second half of my life project. It's like a when you say, where do I want to go? It's a book, it's a training, it's a technique. It's, it's people can get certified in it. It's like a, it's a very accessible way that people can improve their lives because traditional therapy is for most people not accessible. It's expensive. It's hard to come by. It's there's stigma around it, but everybody has their entire record collection. And now with streaming services, you have every song that ever existed at your fingertips. And these are like very powerful therapeutic tools. And I want to teach people how to use them to um, heal their lives. So like for people who don't have like a huge understanding of music and different styles and stuff like like how do you what do you say about for those people? I mean cuz for me like I've been in a music world been married to a music person like it's like my everything. I think I married him because he would put on the best playlists possible for every setting in my life like sitting at my home. So like I understand the value of that. Yeah. Um but what do you say to those people that you know my first like really big client that was loyal to me for like eight years was Spotify. And their very first marketing line when I was working with them was music for every moment. And we had this big party and they had a vampire weekend, Janelle Monet and Frank Ocean in the same room, a small room, like a small room, like a hundred. And this is like, this is 2013 and or 2012, maybe when they first came to New York. And they hired, they, I was recommended to them by the guys who booked uh, uh, Bonnaroo because I had done this like vinyl set. I was really underqualified for this job, to be honest with you. 
And, but I got this job and they were like, we need someone who knows enough genres who can put these artists together. And so I thought, what would Questlove do? Which I thought, which I still think sometimes, but then I thought it all the time. And so I told all these musical stories and they were like, we love you. Let's do this all over the world. And it was great. But to answer, to answer your question about what do you do if you, do you have to be like the person with the best musical taste? What do you do if you don't know all the songs? In a way, I think it's almost, um, this ties back to this idea of inclusivity and making everyone feel cool. And I think in a way, if you are not like a music head or a person who knows like tons of songs, this is even easier. Because if your knowledge is smaller, if I say to you, what's a song that reminds me of your parents riding in the back of your parents' car for those of us who grew up on Long Island? Or what's a song yeah. that reminds you of your hometown? Or what's a, what was the song that reminded you of this friendship and what happened to it? Or what happens when I play you Madonna Borderline? What do you feel? You know, it's like we can go for someone who doesn't have this deep, crazy musical thing. It's easier because you can just go right to the hits. Like you can just go to like what was on the radio in 1986. <laughs> and it, it can trigger those moments that feel more than the audio. It's visual. It's sensual. It's everything that you've ever experienced. It's all the senses. Uh, and that, I mean, I think it is extremely powerful knowing what that is for every individual, it kind of doesn't matter. I have a friend who, you know, I've been out with her and we're dancing and she doesn't know the words of the song, but she's like mouthing things yeah. that aren't even the real words, but she's <laughs> lost in a moment. And it's funny to watch and it's funny to talk about, but in some ways I'm kind of jealous because I'm kind of like trying to get the words right and make sure that I hit the cadence. And like I'm performing for other people, like lip syncing is a thing still. Yeah, it is. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, hello. Well, I, there, I know there are TV shows with lip sync battles still, but um, yeah, I think some, there is something to be said about bringing those moments. It's the story of our lives. Music is the story of our lives, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. For everything that happens to you, it's like, you know, where did you get married? What was your wedding song? Whether you're like the deepest person into music or the, or the not, you know, or, you know, six things. And like, I think there's also, you know, there's, I'm, I'm very good and very knowledgeable at like two things, maybe three, maybe really just one, but there's so <laughs> many things that I, that I know nothing about. So something that Matt knows a lot about that I know literally zero about is sports. Mm -hmm. I don't know shit about sports, mm -hmm. but when I'm invited to uh, like professional besides WWE, which I love. When I'm invited to a sports entertainment for the record, so very clear in their brand. Yeah. That's, that's drag. That is drag. But when I'm invited, it is. When I'm invited to a like professional sports game, <laughs> sports ball game, match. I, always, I always go because it's it's really fun and it's exciting and I can like take it in in an experiential way because I have no. Um, like sort of expectations or knowledge and it gives you a minute to have that like beginner's luck type of experience. Oh, if you're yeah. not a, I wasn't raised with any music. If you ask my mother what her favorite song is, she wouldn't be able to come up with one. That's real talk. And so it's interesting if you're, if you're not like married to music as part of your identity in that way, I think that there's like a freeing way to do this work from a beginner's headspace that will be just as effective. That makes so sense. if your parents weren't... I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. I've got to figure that one out. I mean, <laughs> if, if we want to turn the tables from a therapy perspective, if your parents weren't giving you the gift of music at an early age, what? how did you discover it? What brought you into it? Like, Were there mentors, guides? Was it just like your friends in the basement? 
No, my first musical memory ever is watching, um, do you remember Tom and Jerry? Mm -hmm. Of course. There was like instrumental, like when they raced and stuff. There was. I watched a lot of cartoons growing up. Like a lot. I watched a lot of television growing up. I really Inspector did. Gadget. I didn't really. I have seen it. I didn't. Really, <laughs> but I watched a lot of like Hanna Barbera cartoons. That was like my shit. And so I watched a lot of Tom and Jerry. And there was uh, there were was classical. And the, and it's funny because I remember one piece. And I, I know now the piece is Rhapsody in Blue because I heard it in many years later. And I was like, oh, that's that thing. But I remember, I remember this, like it was yesterday and I was younger than five because we lived in the place where we lived before I was five. And I remember watching Tom and Jerry and I get chills talking about this and hearing Rhapsody in Blue, which is a very like evocative song and thinking, like I remember thinking this in my like four-year-old's head, where is that happening? Like I was like, I'm looking at the mouse and the cat chasing each other, but like the song, like where's the song happening? And I, I had that thought somehow, this like organic thought. And for years as a kid, that was what I was curious about. I was like, but where's the, what is that? And where does that happen? And that was kind of like the first question that I asked that sent me on this, like, I was so curious about it. And then it opens up like a whole world. And then there's a hundred stories after that. But that was the first one. And like music at the time, like you had radio. I feel like now we're aging ourselves, but like you know, you don't. Well, there's music the on TV also, right? I mean, oh, there was music. It's on interesting. TV. You bring up Rhapsody in Blue. My my memories of that song are actually the United Airlines marketing music. Right. That that, that was for thirty years the song underlying every ad they had on the radio and TV, as well as when you get on the plane. You know, there's the like. The, the original music. Yeah. I think of travel. I think of vacations with my family. So the fact that marketing and advertising did that to me with that same song is fascinating and triggers different yet similar types of moments in our lives. Um, is that Gershwin? Who is Rhapsody in Blue yes, Gershwin? Gershwin? And you know what's, ama so. what's amazing about that is, see this to me, this is like, I get chills from this. This is what I do all day. This is what I want. This is like when I think of like the the journey I'm on in this lifetime, this is the one. Because everywhere I go, like all day in my experience as a human, uh, this human experience I'm having, right? <laughs> this is the conversation. What is the first musical memory, whatever? And I tell you what that was for me and how it changed my life. A piece of music, a piece of music written by George Gershwin. And now here on a podcast called Snarketing, the same piece of music, Matt says, that for me was this, this, and this, and it came from- Family vacations. Yes, yeah. but it came from this marketing perspective, and now here I am, a lifetime in marketing, and here I am, a lifetime in music. And the same song, you could argue, the same song, having an experience at the same age, because we're the same age, with the same song, changed the trajectory of our lives. We heard it in different contexts, contexts and followed it. Isn't that something that I'm on here and it's not like, oh, what was the name of that song? I'll have to Google that later. You're like, no, that song to me meant marketing and became, blah, blah, blah. it's like, it's always like this. It's the only well, thing. Well, the, the, the snarketing side of me thinks, well, how much did they pay to get that product, that musical placement for United Airlines? And how much royalty does Gershwin estate get for all that? But that's <laughs> a story for another time because really at the end of the day, the the marketing 
audience evocative nature of what we're talking about, it's still it's still the undercurrent for everything that happens as far as just music, memories, moments. So you were talking about earlier, I don't think we were recording about like setting a legacy for yourself and like while what you're doing today is is all and well, but like what you're building upon is is really for this future version of yourself and, and what you will determine as your legacy, you know, ultimately. And like I, I actually reposted on LinkedIn this thing that I saw from Kobe Bryant, who actually is behind me because I'm in my son's room. And do you know who that he, is, Julie? You know, Kobe Bryant, basketball player. Yeah. Okay, yeah. You're sure. aware. Yeah. Great. Great. Good, good, good. So. um so and it was something around like what does greatness mean to you and 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 it was basically like you know wordsmithing it is you know it's about inspiring others yeah. um and that's just, that's sort of like what his legacy was it's like i just want to be able to share my story and give people an opportunity to feel inspired by that to to become great too and then you know that's what life is about and meeting humans that can 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 kind of have that effect so i don't know what your thoughts are on that I I feel like that's yeah. how you how you feel. Yeah, that's really inspiring, actually. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, it's about like what I'm interested in is consciousness, truthfully. And I don't want to get too like you know kabbalistic and metaphysical on your show, but we're having a real conversation, and that's who I really am. So I'm interested in consciousness, like the ROI. Is that what you're asking me? I think <laughs> is. is is consciousness. Look at the world we live in. There are shootings in a, in the school every day. Okay, we are having like a crisis of connection. People are suffering and they are hurting so badly. It's not great. It's 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 bad. Like shit is real and it's not good. It's bad. And I believe that like when we talk about health, right? What I'm talking about when, when I say health or mental health is really consciousness. And consciousness means not being reactive, not living on autopilot, playing out the same patterns from your parents and your grandparents, whatever. And now we're all on our phones all the time. So it's like we don't even have the regulation that we get from each other. We're just spinning in our own patterns and myself too. We're just spinning our wheels like a stationary bike in the same fucking bad bullshit that has been passed down to us and we have to get off the bike and getting off the bike means waking up and becoming conscious and making choices about your actions and having the reality like the the reality check of like what it means to be alive in this moment it's like we all the fact that the three of us are here alive at the same time and that we listened to the same song growing up it's statistically impossible it's statistically impossible that the three of us are even alive at the same moment isn't it so when you even say that, suddenly you get off that bike, you're like, whoa, you come to presence and you come to some kind of a consciousness. And I want to live that way all the time. That's my dream. And I want to help other people live that way. Because I think when you behave in a conscious way, you don't do things that, that make the world worse. I think if we had more consciousness, we would have a better world. We all have kids, right? We have mm -hmm. four children between us. And I don't want to feel afraid. Like at the end of my life, I don't want to feel afraid. I want to feel uh, hopeful. It's true. It's true. You, know, you and I had a conversation maybe a month or two ago as I was considering a career change. And I was 
And I've thought a lot about that conversation. It inspired me. It gave me some parameters to gauge opportunity against pros, cons, but really taking a step back and thinking like, what should I be doing with my life? What am I good at? What makes me happy? What can I make some money doing, right? That was incredibly inspiring and helpful. You are a gift unto us, but are there people who have inspired you or who have given you those types of frameworks? Because you speak from a place not only of knowledge, but also of of passion and, and purpose. Where does that come from? Well, I'm really glad that that, that conversation was helpful for you. Um, and it makes me feel good because I don't really totally remember exactly what I must have said in that, but I, but I, but I feel. It inspired me to start this podcast and here we are. It's perfect. No, I didn't <laughs> that's great. You can feel like I'm doing, I'm walking the walk. Right. So who inspires me? You know, like I have done, like there are practices that inspire me like Jewish mysticism, real talk like Kabbalah inspires me in a very serious way. And I don't talk about it a lot because it's controversial in a lot of different ways, but there are teachings from certain practices. You could look at someone like um, Neville Goddard, like these people who talk about, you know, metaphysics and it's thinking about the world and thinking about our human experience in a different way than I was raised. I was raised with this idea of reality. Well, it's reality. You have to get a job. That's reality. And I was like, no, I'm going to get a big record deal. And my favorite band on earth is the Beastie Boys. And all I ever wanted was to be a Beastie Boy. And then I got to work with and be friends with a Beastie Boy. How did that happen? Because I, because I, because I didn't make a backup plan because I just went for it. And then when I got older, I learned that there are some practices that give you tools to do this kind of thing. It's like, it's not an accident. People who inspire me, RuPaul inspires me beyond, I can't, I could cry talking about this. There's no, I can't measure, I can't put a measurement to how RuPaul inspires me. RuPaul is a, a human being whose mother said uh, when she was pregnant, I'm going to name him RuPaul Andre Charles and he's going to be a motherfucking star. And look what happened. Um, um, and so Manifesting through the belly. Totally. And just like That's someone cute. who just really celebrates who they are as like a true original, like this is who RuPaul is and now has built in our world, in the world of here, in this matrix, like a zillion dollar gigantic empire and, and has helped the world and has opened minds. And I can have conversations with other people's children because RuPaul has given me the tools, not just the types of conversations we have in my house. And that inspires me. Like I, I, I wish I would have dreamed that I could have that type of impact. There's artists that I love. Um, Joseph Albers is a, a Bauhaus mm -hmm. painter who painted, he has, do you know Joseph Albers? Oh, homage, to the, homage yeah. to the square. So I've been looking at, I'll tell you like one woo woo story. If that, do you want to hear this? Is this like, yeah, yeah. So I, when I was 19, I went to, uh, I went to London and it was, I think the first time I was really out of the country and I moved to London because <clears throat> I was very interested in this uh, type of like, kind of like indie rock that was coming out of the UK. And when I got there, all anybody listened to was garage music, which I fucking love, which is like dance, 90s dance music, British 90s dance music. And I'll, I'll send you, okay. some you'll love it. It's the best. I'm sure like your husband and you will know all about it, but I'll send you some stuff. So people were listening to garage music and I was like, I discovered, like, I got my life on the dance floor. You know, that expression means you get your life. I got uh, my life 
I had like spiritual experiences listening to this music in this foreign country. Like the first time I made a big choice, the first time I really felt like myself. And I went to the Tate Modern one day because I love to go to a museum to get inspiration. And on the wall, I saw this piece and it was one of the pieces uh, from the series Homage to the Square that Joseph Albertson painted. Now he painted, we don't know, but several hundred or low thousands of the same thing, it's square. The reason he painted them this way is because he wanted, he felt that art should be uh, kind of like for everybody living its own life. Meaning that this isn't um, Edward Munch, whatever, the scream. It's the here, scream. not the Mona Lisa. You got to go to the Louvre and see it. It's, I made this piece and they're out in the world and they can never be in the same place. So whenever they do an Albers retrospective, they did one at the Guggenheim a few years ago. They had like 20 of them and that was amazing, but there's so many of them and you don't know where they are. So I bought a print, right? I bought a print, which probably cost like 200 pounds. I didn't have any money and I brought it home and I framed it. It's in my house. It was a print. And so I, that became a thing for me that I loved this piece and I discovered this music and I discovered this art at a time in my life when I made a choice to move out of the country. And so then I traveled for, you know, 15 years or 10 years in the band. And now I travel as a DJ and wherever I go, when I would have like a day off, I would search to see if there was an Albers anywhere. And there always is one here, one there, one there. And I would be amazing. Okay. So I'm in Spain. There's an out, there's two Albers here. Fine. I'm going to spend the day doing whatever, making my way to see the Albers. And when I see the Albers, I feel connected to myself, but Joseph Albers inspires me because he created all these pieces and then he took them like the way you put a sand in your hand and go, and that, and we'll never, we'll never know how many there are, there are, there are, we'll never have seen them all. And he didn't leave records of how many he made. And I love them. And that's, I love them. yes. And that's what like the, the work of, you know, music and art really is, is that you don't, you can't trace it. You, you can't have an ROI. And that's why this is such an interesting conversation is like, what's the ROI on art that you, that you, what's the, how can you measure it? I think it's, it's, and I think it's a great lesson for, or just takeaway for those of us who are so, I mean, I I think I'm a left brain and right brain, but there are people in the marketing industry who work more broadly in business, who every action needs to have some sort of degree of KPI or measurability. And that guides everything, right? If we don't know what the inputs are, how do we know what the output should be or vice versa? How do we know if the outputs were successful in moving the needle and converting some sort of change? And maybe it doesn't matter as much as we think it does because the inspiration that we draw from anything that we see or anything we hear or anything that we feel is in many ways immeasurable. Yes. So as you are meeting and you are traveling the world at different events or meeting marketers or um, you know, brought in to make the, the party fun yeah do, do you think that, do you look out and say these are people who are creating art do you think about it that way or are you thinking about this as just another audience that you want to make sure is having a good time do i think about marketers as people who are creating art yes do you yeah how so well i think marketing is part art part science we need to leverage an understanding of the audience to give them something that makes them feel, makes them do, take an action, and without some sort of 
sense for what motivates and guides them and what inspires them, those actions will not have the equal or opposite reaction that marketers intend. So you look at creative directors. I mean, I know your husband, right? He's trying to create art for a purpose. So it's not entirely driven by the idea of art in and of itself, but art as a tool, art as a vehicle for creating an outcome, inspiring something, I think is is still powerful. I mean, like, I was just watching, like, James Corden did, like, a remake of, of um, Cindy Crawford and the Pepsi, you know, like, kicking the, 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 the vending machine and trying to get, and, and he was, like, coming out of the car instead of her, and it was ridiculous. But, like, you know, for those that grew up seeing that commercial, like, years ago, like, again, it leaves an imprint in your mind similar to, like, music or whatever. And so those are marketers. Those are creatives creating that. So, like, there's certainly... Uh, you know, art in, in that. And I think there's been some really amazing stuff done from that capacity that just was top of mind. I guess, like, I guess when I think, when I see the, the folks or whatever, like, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't play different. If I was playing for like a room of like artsy fartsy people versus a room of corporate people, these are just folks <laughs> in costumes and they're just different <laughs> costumes. You're not more of this if you're this or more of a that if you're that. They're just different costumes. And you can the thing is, you can change. It's like, I'm in a t-shirt and some necklaces today. So I look a certain kind of way. And this is my most, and leather pants. And this is my most comfortable uniform. But if I had rolled into this meeting in like a suit, you know, it would, I would be giving a different energy. And if I had rolled in in like a, you know, push-up bra, I'd be giving a different energy. <laughs> but, it's like, but that's what makes marketing, I think, interesting as an art in the same way that when you're in Cannes and I'm wearing my pink pants and, you know, lime green shirt on the beach, <laughs> I'm in a costume, but I'm fitting into an environment. I'm still me, but the vibe can be somewhat set by you and others creating this atmosphere and I want to both contribute to it, but also take something out of it. And I think that's where you and what you do and what marketers and advertisers do is we're both creating something for others to engage and react to, but also we want something in return. What do you want in return? When you're looking out at the crowd, you want to see people smiling, jumping, dancing, singing along, right? If you want something out of that, you get something, you feel something out of that. Yeah, I do. I mean, yes, of course. But it's like different, different things come out of different projects. So, you know, for you guys, I'm sure it's exactly the same way. And it's like, you know, sometimes you do things that are really cool that pay you really low. And sometimes you do things that pay you a lot of money that aren't as like, you know, don't turn you on as much or whatever. And I, I always I always keep my eye on the money because I, I have to, and I want to. And doing things that are higher paying fund the things that are lower paying, I guess. I don't know. I guess I wish I had thought about it. I wish I, you know, I think the reason that I'm getting tripped up on this or I don't have an answer for you is because I think it's an insecurity of mine that I, I am such like an artist in my heart in the way that I do things. And when I go to a place like Cannes and I look around and I'm like, I, I feel like I should be like, who are all these folks and like, what can they do for me? And I should meet with this one. You know, I worked for Spotify for eight years. I traveled all over the world with them. They were like, don't you want to work here? Like, what are you doing? And I was like, no, let's just do the gigs. And I opened for, you know, Tony Bennett and Kendrick Lamar and the Foo Fighters and everyone that they worked with, I opened for. And then when they had an IPO and all my friends like made a ton of money, 
I was like, why didn't I do that? That was really foolish. I'm not going to make that mistake again. And yet when I go to Cannes and I look into the audience and everyone's like the big ballers and whatever, all I think about is like, how old are they? Where are they from? And like, cause that helps me figure out what to play and mm-hmm. what, like, what's going to make them feel cool. Like they all feel a little stiff. They all feel a little like douchey. Like they don't like that part of this, but there's a part of this that's amazing, which is that you're in the South of France on a yacht. I wasn't raised that way. Look how lucky we are. Look how lucky we are. And so that's Incredible. Like, that's the energy I try to bring musically of like, this is beautiful. We are so lucky, like waking them up a little consciousness. And so I get lost in that and I don't play like the game in the right way as far as networking, like the way it works here. But what happens is what has happened in my career is that there's often like a really important person, like a CEO. That's why I have so many good contacts who doesn't maybe want to talk about business. And I gave that guy his life a little bit musically and he wants to come over and talk to me. That's art. And that's a little bit of science, right? You figured out what works for you and you are optimizing against that. So before we wrap up, let us both Valerie and I say thank you for joining us, for challenging us, for for inspiring us, for making us a little bit healthier. I love this. I love this hippie version of you. This is so, this is lovely. I know. Sometimes when I get up. Well, so let's see how she does though under pressure because hippies are usually great. This is like my most real like, you know, this is, this is my most real self, but I don't know if it's marketing enough because part of me is like, maybe you guys could help me fucking market this shit. Again, part of this is art. Part of this is science and finding that blend being either consistent to find your niche by having one topic that you talk about all the time and that grows an audience or having a more diverse set of content and uh, topics that you address. Like there's different ways to do it. But really, I think if there's one thing Valerie and I have learned is that growing an audience requires a combination of content, context, and consistency. Yes. And then a little bit of paid boosting helps always. This is Gone in 60 Seconds. We are going to wrap up now with our Gone in 60 Seconds outro right this is how we close the party down it can either be a success or it can be a failure but people always remember the last song so put 60 seconds on the clock val thank you i see that you've done that we are going to get going with the first question (laughs) what is your favorite marketing industry event of the year ken lyon what is the most successful hair color you've ever rocked this one Plus, well, it has to frame like the scarlet letter, you know? So it's like, it's bright red. Do you find people who ride, drive in the car without music on Psychotic? No, because I do it a lot to rest my hairs. You've heard of FMK, Fuck, Marry, Kill. We are going to create a variation of that, which is collab, tour, or drop. Meaning you want to collaborate with them, you would want to tour with them, or you just want to totally just drop them. Okay. Harry Styles, Ooh, Taylor girl. Swift. Beyonce, tour, collab, drop. This is so easy. It's comical. Let's get the F back in there. And that would be Harry Styles. <laughs> there would be Taylor Swift. And I'm not trying to drop Beyonce, but like, you know, I don't want to stand in a picture next to Beyonce. So I'm going to, I'm going to step to this. I'm gonna step out of that frame. Okay. All right. If there is one song 
when you look out and you see that the crowd is fading or you need to cue up one banger that's guaranteed to get everyone back in the center of the dance floor, what's your go-to? There are certain songs that have uh, like a built-in trick. Okay, this is a DJ trick because before we had um, technology to help DJ, they had to put the vinyl on the turntable and you needed a second to cue things up so they would match. And so there's a little producer named uh, Puffy who used to say, <laughs> make the intro quieter than the rest of the song. Because what happens is the DJ puts the vinyl on the, the turntable and is listening for that intro, listening for that intro to beat match and turns it up. And then when the song comes in, it makes the room shake. Now here's some examples. Hypnotize. Think about the beginning of Hypnotize. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, feels so good with Mace. We're not even listening to it and we're doing it. So on the dance floor, when I see that we are at like, like a 75, I don't try to like turn it up like this. What I do is I let it drop by giving you like a silent intro to something. And then everyone gets confused because they're like, wait a minute, what's happening? Like we were just getting this thing started and I make them think that like we're kind of dying. <laughs> and then I hit them hard with something and then they explode. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta use those tricks wisely because if you use them poorly, like they, they flop. Sorry, that's not a lightning round answer. Uh, okay, last question before we let you go. I was gonna say, what's your favorite? Have a good. I was gonna say, what's your favorite? Have a good cry song. Oh, you know what makes me cry? I don't like to have a good cry, which is too too bad. Neither yeah, do I. But I, I don't like it. But I but I'll do it from time to time. But you know what song always makes me cry, which I don't even listen to. I never listen to Joni Mitchell because I find it like too. It's like too much. But if I listen to um, both sides now. That makes me cry. But you know what else makes me cry? I went like I went to see and Juliet with my kid and another mom and another kid. And Juliet is the Broadway show with Max Martin's music. Oh, I don't, it's I don't totally know. That. It's not for it's not for you guys. It's for like you, you're not you're out of the you aged out of the demo. You know what I mean with your kid. <laughs> but but uh, that happened for me in everything like, twenty years ago. By the way, yeah. When uh, <laughs> when I hear like anything that's performer y or like show tunes y. It always, it always makes me cry. If any, it doesn't have to be. Oh my God, do you get that? Magical it, like, feeling like when you walk into a theater, like, oh, this makes me cry. When you, that feeling when you like walk into a theater and like the lights haven't gone down yet, but everyone's like waiting and then, oh my God, I have chills all over my body. And then the lights go down and it's like something is about to happen. It's like, that makes me feel like my, <laughs> like a kid immediately. And that makes me cry. Like when the lights go down in a theater, I cry. It, it ha starts in my throat, like I get the choked up feeling and then it's like, mm -hmm. it's amazing. yeah, I know that, exactly. That moment, like honestly, it makes me feel like, or like I DJed an event at Town Hall on Monday for Emma Lovewell, her book release, which was awesome. And we did a lot of, it was very theatrical, a lot of piece and they're very, the Peloton people are very musical theatery and they're so cute. Cody Rigsby and her and me did this whole thing. It was really fun. And we rehearsed it in the yeah. wings and all this stuff. And we had to be off the stage because the stage goes dark because it's a union room. So you can't walk on the stage for an hour before the show. And so we're in town hall with all the seats and we're waiting. I was DJing and we were waiting for the people to come in and they turn the lights down and I was working and I like started to have, I started to become overcome and I felt this like 
and I allowed this spontaneous thought to just be like, like, I, I feel so grateful to be like alive in the, like, I felt, I was like this feeling of like, you know what I mean? Like just this magic, like it feels separate from the money and the work and all the things I worry about. And just like this moment of like, we're all here to like watch a performance. And like, I can't believe this oh. is like all I ever wanted. And that was not a big money job. It was like, I, you know, but like, I can't believe I get to do this. Like, this is all my only dream. It's like, I sat in the audience and looked at the stage and was like, how do I get there? And I don't even like do anything. I don't like, really, I don't, I'm not like a great musician. I'm not a great singer. Like, I don't, I'm not a great fucking actress. Even though I have a BFA from Tish, I was not that great. Like, I just wanted to be there. I like found a way to do it. Just like being myself. And that's, I guess, maybe the lesson. And maybe that's probably what I talked to you about when we were talking about your job. Just like, what do you, where, where do you want to, like, how can you find a way to get where you want to get just by being you? Can you like turn the noise about all the other shit down to just be like, I want to be there. And then, I know because that's when you're your best version of yourself too. You're just like in a place of like true, like a, just love and it's totally contagious. It's so. How do we create yeah. more of those moments? That's what I think we should all be striving for and enjoy them while we're in them. We're we created so many in this hour, and I can't believe I've been on with you guys this long, but it's fun, and it's like that's what we did here. We made memories. Wow, that was certainly memorable. Thanks to Julie, and thanks to everyone for listening. Matt and Valerie are already off to their next meetings, but let us know what you thought, and if you know of a snarky marketer to be on a future episode. See you next time on the Snarketing Podcast.